0: Here at the Uncover Up, we spend a lot of time looking to the skies, searching for alien civilizations, but today we're going to turn our gaze out to the sea to see if we can find a lost human civilization, the civilization of Atlantis.
1: This is all the test.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Uncover Up. Today, Nathan and I are going to explore Atlantis, right, Nathan?
0: Yeah, and it's probably just in time because what listeners won't realize is Lee, you really had yourself a bit of a problem today.
2: Tell me, well, you know, I've had a bunch of problems. Which one are you referring to?
0: Trying to park in front of the bunker, <laughs>
2: yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> so Lee was trying to pay for parking in front of the bunker when he came over, and it got all tied up in bureaucracy and technology. And then eventually he just he he collapsed into despair.
2: I did not pay for parking again. yeah, so I'm gonna get another fifty dollars ticket when I leave
0: this. and not only that, when you look at the window of the bunker, you see it's snowing. it's snow, it's gray. If only there was a place we could go. Yeah. If only there was some kind of utopia where you wouldn't have to worry about trying to download parking apps on your phone or snow somewhere west of the Pillars of Hercules. Ah! In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. If there was an island. Maybe an island big enough to even be considered a continent. And if that island was populated by an advanced civilization. And this goes back to at a time when the rest of humanity was still trying to figure out the basics of agriculture. And this island was filled with amazing technologies, some of which we have yet to understand or match even in our modern world. Now, if only we could go to a place like that. But what if there had been a massive catastrophe and the island and the people disappeared under the waves? Yeah. So that's where we're going to go today. In our minds, we're going to try to travel back to this land called Atlantis.
2: We're going to find it. And if you could find it, you would find this really ancient, ancient civilization that such I,
0: riches, such knowledge. Right.
2: And I beauty. almost imagine it would be like if you found a sentient, highly advanced alien dwelling on Earth, you know? It would be that weird.
0: Yeah, you know, in a in a way it was almost like the Atlantis story predated our alien stories. Yeah. But it kind of served a similar role in our cultures. Okay. So let's get into it. Let's All start right. off with the very beginning. Who's the first person, as far as we know, to ever mention Atlantis?
2: I think this is generally a really good method. If you want to figure something out, especially as it pertains to history, if you can find the earliest sources, that already gives you a clue as to what's going on. It turns out that the first mention of Atlantis is old. I mean, the records that we have go back roughly, I'm not exact here, but roughly two and a half thousand years into the past. So that seems to be a pretty old record. And if the record is to be believed, I have my finger up right now as I it's say true. this. If, not if, kidding. if it's to be believed, it was handed down through oral knowledge from 9,000 years before it was recorded in on paper.
0: I mean, it's definitely an old story.
2: Yeah. But We're
0: not sure how old it is, at least
2: 2,500 years, right. because we have the book in which it was first recorded. And this was by Plato. It's in two of Plato's dialogues, in fact. It's in the Timaeus and in the Critias. These are rather short works of philosophy from ancient Greece, from the kind of renaissance of ancient Greece, by the big philosopher, maybe of all time, in, certainly in the Western canon. It's been said that all philosophy after Plato is just a footnote to his work. That's maybe an exaggeration, but it does give you a sense of his status within the Western philosophical tradition.
0: I mean, the guy is super important. Now, of course, you are a an academic, by which I mean colossal nerd.
2: Yes. I'm and not so, the only one in this room, though. There's no need to get personal.
0: <laughs> Let's very, very briefly not assume that everybody is as familiar with Plato as we are. Okay. And and talk a little bit about this guy, Plato.
2: Okay. So, Plato comes from a well to do family. He wants to be a playwright. He really idolizes a figure in Athenian society who goes by the name of Socrates, who is a real uh, character and outsider. He is basically, I guess we would today call him a hobo or a ho- certainly homeless. He walked around without shoes. He didn't bathe a lot. And he would make a nuisance of himself. And he was able to gather a following of young Athenian uh, men uh, who were his students. Plato was one of them. And so Plato ditches this idea of becoming a playwright and an author and instead becomes a philosopher. While there are philosophers before Plato, Plato's work has... Just incredible afterlife. Uh, in part because his students are very successful, including Aristotle, very famous, very successful. in part because his works were translated and so also remained mostly intact, although unfortunately one of the sources for Atlantis is is um, not intact, but we have more of his work than we have of a lot of the other ancient philosophers.
0: A couple key things to note. He is a philosopher of politics, of ethics, of metaphysics, of epistemology. One thing he is not is a historian. That is true. That's not the point of the stuff he writes. And if you've never read Plato, it's weird. It's kind of like reading plays. Every one of Plato's works takes place as a dialogue between characters, like people who actually existed. And, of course, Plato himself is never one of the characters. It's always Socrates. Right. This is why there's this big debate, do we actually have any idea what Socrates was like? Because when we hear, you know, about Socrates, are we actually just having Plato put words into Socrates' mouth? Yeah. yeah. There are two works that, uh, that he wrote towards the end of his life, the Timaeus and the Cretius. And this is, as far as we can tell, the first place where Atlantis shows up. Yeah. Both of these dialogues, they're, they're kind of like a in sequence. They're part of the same... They were going to be a trilogy. He never got around to finishing it. Yeah. So basically, there's a bunch of people sitting around having a party. Plato is not one of them. Right. Socrates is one of them. Critias is one of them. Timaeus is one of them. And so in the Timaeus, they're starting the conversation. And Critias tells a story that he said that he received this story from his grandfather who received it from his father, who heard it from a famous Greek historian named Solon, who heard it in Egypt from some priests. So what we're getting here is a story told by Plato, about a story told to Socrates that had been told to Critias by Critias's grandfather, that had been told to Critias's grandfather by his father, who had it told to him by Salon, who had it told to him by Egyptian priests.
2: This actually would be part of an oral narrative tradition is sometimes providing a lineage for the story or for the narrative. And it doesn't often really add up. I mean, you just read the, what is it in the Bible with the generations? and Oh, the begatting. Yeah, the begatting. You actually look closely. There's like hundreds of years between certain people, but nonetheless, you use this in a kind of a metaphorical way to give a sense of, well, this is an old story that comes from somewhere else and can be trusted.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's it's talking about the lineage of the story. And the story itself goes like this. So Solon is talking to the Egyptian priests about the history of Athens. And the priests kind of scoff at him, saying, you're like a child. You might think you're a historian, but you're more like a child. Because of the cataclysmic events that occasionally wipe out entire civilizations, the priests claim that Ceylon's appreciation of history is limited, that there's much more history than Ceylon realizes. Then they tell him a story. In the beginning, the gods were dividing up the world. The goddess Athena received Athens, and the god Poseidon received the continent of Atlantis, which, according to Critias, was larger than Libya and Asia combined.
2: To just briefly interject in Nathan's narrative here, I, I saw a map of what Libya, Asia, and Europe looked like to the ancient Greeks and it's very different from your and my modern conception of Libya, Europe, and Asia. So uh, just to give you a sense, Libya was bigger than both Asia and Europe in the in this map that I saw. Yeah, so they did it, not
0: realize how big Asia was
2: no. So I think Libya is sort of a stand-in for all of North Africa, if not potentially Africa as such. And Europe and Asia, I mean, they just don't correspond to anything that I would recognize if you showed me that map. But the point is, it's supposed to be a big place. It's a big right? place. Like it's Atlantis a, a big is, island. It's not supposed to be like Japan or Great Britain. And which are big islands in and of themselves. It's supposed to be, I think, on the order of like Australia.
0: Yeah. Or it's a, bigger. It's, it's a continent, basically. Yeah. So this story takes place about 9,000 years earlier than Ceylon, which of course takes place earlier than Socrates, who, which takes place earlier than Plato. So that puts it about 9600 BCE.
2: Right, so from today, that would be around, what, 11,500 years ago?
0: Yeah, which means that we're closer to Plato in time than Plato would have been to the time in which this story takes place. Right, Like, we're much closer to Plato, time-wise, than he is to this story. I mean, this story predates the construction of the Great Pyramids by about 7,000 years. Right. This is an old, old story. It predates the timelines of many of the stories in the Book of Genesis, like uh, the Great Flood and Noah's Ark, by about 8,000 years. Okay. So this is basically like the first human story, if we're to believe this timeline.
2: And that is not entirely out of place because the Timaeus is really a kind of a cosmological treaty in Plato's work. This is really kind of part of this metaphysical worldview that Plato had is outlined here. So the fact that we would be getting kind of early tales from a kind of a prehistory is maybe not that that weird If you have that context.
0: Yeah. It's almost like Plato is trying to make a book of Genesis here. Yeah. In this story, the people of Athens were living in an idyllic city state in which everyone knew their place and they admired virtue above all things. They were renowned all across Europe and Asia for their physical beauty and strength of character. And they lived in a manner that's very similar to Plato's version of how a state should be run, which of course is not a coincidence. Right. Because, as we said, when we read Plato's dialogues, are we really getting the perspectives of these real-life characters, or are we just getting Plato? Meanwhile, Poseidon falls in love with a human woman named Clito, and knocks her up with five sets of twins, all boys. One of the boys is named Atlas, and he becomes king of this this continent, and the island is named in his honor Atlas Atlantis.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so is the ocean, isn't it? The Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. So as a place for his progeny to live and prosper, Poseidon uses his god powers to make the island of Atlantis a kind of paradise. Hot and cold running springs, rich soil for crops. And before we continue, we need to sort of discuss this. What are we supposed to do with a story like this that's told as if it's true? And that says several times in this dialogue, oh, this is a totally true story. But it's got supernatural elements in it. It's Mm -hmm. got Poseidon existing as a physical being and impregnating people, also having ancient Greek god powers, this is actually a general rule that we should use to test all conspiracy hypotheses. What other things do I have to believe in order to believe this story? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to believe this story as it's told here, what are some of the things that we also have to believe in? Gods. Yeah, and specifically the Greek gods. Right.
2: We would also need to believe in... Athens being a prospering and thriving culture 11 and a half thousand years ago.
0: Which, as far as we know, is not the case.
2: Well, so how would we know something like that? turns out that Athens is maybe one of the most excavated archaeological sites on the planet. And archaeologists have a way of going, sort of dating this stuff as they go further down. And you get evidence of civilization 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Maybe 4,000 years ago. So that would be 2,000 years earlier than when Plato's writing. But then it kind of stops. So that still leaves us with 7,000 years unaccounted for. There ain't nothing down there that we can see that points to any grand civilization. But we would need to believe that. We would need to believe in the Greek gods.
0: Yeah, that's a lot to have to believe. So we'll move on. The descendants of Atlas and the rest of Poseidon's children do real well, and Atlantis flourishes. They've got lots of wood for carpentry. They've got wild animals for hunting and tame animals for farming. They've got rich soil and lush plant life. They've got fragrant flowers and delicious fruits. Uh, They've got elephants. Yeah. Uh, I kind of want to live here. The civilization constructed massive temples and palaces and docks and carved massive channels, from the ocean to allow the sailing of triremes and other boats right up into the cities. Mm-hmm. At this point, I want to stop again, and you I want to
2: talk to, about triremes. I want to talk you? about
0: triremes. This is—I can't talk about airplanes in this episode. Well, I was going to
2: say there's no airplanes. We're safe from airplanes,
0: or and so you yet, think. Yet, this is an important point, and I really noticed it. The trireme is specifically mentioned as a kind of ship that the Atlanteans have. Okay. So the Trireme was a Greek warship developed in about 600 or 700 BCE. This means that if the Atlanteans had had them in 9,000 BCE, that would have been an extremely advanced technology. Right. But it was also a technology that Plato would have been very familiar with. This wasn't an example of some strange new speculative tech. This was a technology that Plato would have experienced pretty much on the regular. So it makes it much more likely that this story was written or at least modified in Plato's day, since the technology is drawn from Plato's day. You see what I mean? It's like, if if we were telling the story, maybe we would have them have airplanes right. and the internet yeah. and be like, they were so advanced. They had our technology.
2: Yeah,
0: We're going to come back to that as we look at the way that the story of Atlantis kind of evolves as the years go on. The technology of the people of Atlantis tends to keep up with the time period of the people telling the story of Atlantis. Right, right. So according to this story, the people of Atlantis were, like the people of Athens, extremely pious and ethical, which for Plato is everything. That's that's the whole deal. I've got a long quote.
1: For many generations, as long as the divine nature lasted in them, they were obedient to the laws and well-affectioned towards the God whose seed they were. For they possessed true and in every way great spirits, uniting gentleness with wisdom in the various chances of life and in their intercourse with one another. They despised everything but virtue, caring little for their present state of life, and thinking lightly of the possession of gold and of a property, which seemed only a burden to them. Neither were they intoxicated by luxury, nor did wealth deprive them of their self-control, but they were sober, and saw clearly that all these goods are increased by virtue and friendship with one another, whereas by too great regard and respect for them, they are lost in friendship with them. By such reflections and the continuous in them of a divine nature, the qualities which we have described grew and increased among them. But when the divine portion began to fade away and became deluded, too often and too much, with the mortal admixture, and the human nature got the upper hand, they then, being unable to bear their fortune, behaved unseemly, and to him who had an eye to see grew visibly debased, for they were losing the fairest of their precious gifts. But to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they appeared glorious and blessed at the very time they were full of avarice and unrighteous power.
0: Zing. That's some quote there. So... This is a morality story. Yeah. This is a story about you had people and they are righteous and they are basically behaving according to the way Plato thinks humans should behave. Yeah. And then as they get further and further from their God, Mm. as they get further and further from Poseidon, as his seed gets sort of more and more watered down, they become more interested in wealth and possessions and that kind of thing. And so just as it seems at the very moment, they're like, oh, this place is going great. place is going gangbusters. This is actually when they are about to collapse.
2: Well, and and, and th- their avarice uh, leads them to become a kind of colonial superpower. Yeah. And they try and take over areas uh, first adjacent to them, including Athens. Yeah. And so the point of the story is actually not that, as, as we might imagine today, that Plato's imagining this amazing place where everything was good. Well, he is. But it's At early first. Athens. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. It, the good place is Athens, which defeats Atlantis, who have gone away from the moral uh, high ground, who have devolved into interests in you know, wars and colonialism and conquest. And so the point of the story is uh, showing that actually the virtuous nature of Athenians Nine thousand years ago. and maybe this is a point do we talk about the purpose of this story?
0: Well, because- I think we I think we should because we've actually come to the end of the story. okay, because this so- is where I mean Plato did not finish this dialogue. He gets to this point and then Zeus, who sees all this happen, he's like, I'm gonna teach them a lesson so they might be chastened and improve. And then he destroys the island, yeah. which is a hell of a way to improve somebody.
2: <laughs> Those ancient gods, I yeah. mean, they, they were very heavy-handed. I'll fix punishments.
0: I'm all fixed them. Um, Raised this island to the ground. And then the story just ends because Plato stopped writing it. He yeah. didn't stop writing. He wrote other things after this, but he seemed to lose interest in this story.
2: Yeah. Nathan said that Plato invents these scenarios in which people kind of get together, basically have a party and talk about stuff. It's the way that, at least an idealized way in which ancient Greek philosophy was done, apparently, at least narratively, the night before, was the big discussion which is recounted in The Republic. Now, The Republic is a giant, well, not a giant, it's a big book. It is, especially culturally, it's just this big, you know, important piece And it's where we got the allegory of the cave from in our Is the World a Hologram podcast. But it's also where the main point of that story is Socrates imagines what a perfect society would look like. And they call it the Republic. Now, the Timaeus and the Critias, they take place the day after. And it reminded me, actually, reading these two dialogues, it felt a little bit like... A bunch of people stayed at the party after the party was over and just kept trying to have fun, but it's not as much fun anymore. And so you have this major work, and then you have this kind of like hangover afterthought. And that's what the Timaeus and Critias are, is where two of the characters come back to Socrates, and they're like, look, we, we couldn't get to sleep last night. The discussion was so riveting. But here's a question. Has, the, has a just and perfect society ever existed? And that's where we get into the discussion of Athens 9,000 years ago and how they stood up to this super powerful, mythical, corrupted, corrupted, but very similar to Greek civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and the point of this story, the point that Plato is trying to make is not that Atlantis is good, but that Athens is good. And that, yeah, Atlantis got their comeuppance. There are a few things in the Republic that are worth knowing for the interpretation of the story. One of them is this concept of the noble lie, and which is to say that it is justified to lie to people if the result of it is that they're going to live a good and moral life. And some scholars have looked at the Atlantis story and said, well, coming right on the heels of this book about justice, which focused a lot on the role of the noble lie, and Plato, being a very literary uh, and literary-infused and imbued philosopher, is actually now doing it. He's telling a noble lie. And he says to his, well, in the, through the mouth of Socrates, says to his compatriots, yes, Athens was a good city a long time ago. The implication being, you could do it again now if you just behaved the way we elaborated it in the Republic.
0: Yeah. One of the ways that we can tell this is a reasonable interpretation of this is that the story of Atlantis didn't cause much of a stir in Plato's time. No. As you would expect if he was telling like a story, it's like well here's an example of what happens to countries that try to stay righteous and countries that stray from righteousness. Yeah. You stray from righteousness, you get wiped out. You stay righteous, you hold on. Yeah. And so like as far as we can tell from the records surviving, nobody's really that big into this Atlanta story in ancient Greece. I mean, Aristotle, his, his big student, mentioned it once in passing, as far as we can tell, Yeah, referencing the fact that the one who invented it also destroyed it. Right. So that seems to strongly suggest that the story was drawn from Plato's imagination rather than historical fact.
2: Yeah. I You know, let's imagine how people, and we're two and a half thousand years away from uh, Plato, how would people... Judge our relationship today with a character like Superman, because I think that has embodies a lot of this. Like we know, if you've ever read any Superman comics, Superman is sort of like all good, Mm -hmm. right? He represents the good in that culture. Like uh, he's kind and he's gentle. He's incredibly strong, but only uses his powers for good. He always tries to help people. All this kind of stuff, but. If you, two and a half thousand years in the future, read all of the stuff that has been produced around Superman, would you think, oh, well, clearly 20th century Americans believed literally in the existence of Superman?
0: Yeah. No, and it's... then you'd have other historians being like, but how do we reconcile Superman? Why didn't Superman stop Darth Vader? Right. <laughs> like, Earth history is very confusing on this point. Yeah.
2: I think, though, we we never give the ancients this kind of credit, right? We we always assume that
0: if... That we're more sophisticated than them.
2: Yes, and that if they talked about something like this, they could not have used metaphor or analogy or irony or, you know, they couldn't have had any kind of, like, uh, skeptical distance and, and deliberately and strategically used this stuff as as literary tools. No, 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 they must have had kind of literal belief in it but we've brought this up like Plato does this all the time in his philosophy nobody thinks that there's actually a cave with people yeah. chained you know with
0: whatever yeah that story was to tell a point and so you're making the argument that the Atlantis story is also just to tell a point and that like Aristotle argues Plato invented Atlantis so yeah. he could make his point and then destroyed it also to make his point right but Atlantis obviously doesn't it begins with Plato it doesn't end with Plato
2: No, it doesn't. And maybe that is actually like just a warning to the rest of us. Like, even when you're not trying, you know, just flirting with stuff that is not real.
0: You make an idea, that idea becomes an organism in the information ecosystem, and off it goes. Off it goes. Off it goes to mutate and replicate.
2: So, how, I mean, how does this get going? We have the origin story, it's a literary device used by a philosopher. But what takes us from two and a half thousand years ago to today?
0: Well, the idea of Atlantis manages to stay in the mind of humans during the time between ancient Greece and today. It it isn't that popular for a few hundred years. But the collision of Europe and America in 1492 rekindles this idea. Right. Because some people were like, hey, there's a lot of indigenous stories about catastrophic floods. Right. There's, and and also, maybe America is that island. Although, uh, I mean, people did make that argument, although that doesn't make any sense because then that has nothing to do with Plato's story at all. Right. Because the two things about Plato's story are it was sort of just off the coast of Spain and it's destroyed. So if he was actually talking about what we now call America, it's pretty far from the coast of Spain and was not destroyed. But people did make that argument. Uh, they also said that, you know, the the possibly mythical homeland of the Aztec people was called Aztlán. uh uh-huh. Sounds a little bit like Atlantis. And it stayed in the zeitgeist as an idea of a utopia. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon had been working on a novel titled New Atlantis when he died in 1626 about an ideal island state. Yeah. And oddly, one of the factors that contributed to the rise of the idea of Lost Continents was the impact caused by Darwin's publication of Origin of Species. Okay. Because... As an explanatory theory, evolution's pretty impressive. Yep. It makes a bunch of predictions, and then we can go out into the world and, and do experiments and, and do observations and we see, yeah, these predictions, for the most part, are borne out. Yeah. It's a good theory. But it did lead to some odd questions. For example, lemurs. Uh-oh. I want to talk about lemurs.
2: Man, it's it's shrimp and airplanes most of the time. And this time we got boats and lemurs. Boats and lemurs. What
0: an episode. So you know what a lemur is. It's like a little salamander thing, isn't it? Oh, wait. What are you thinking of? No, a lemur is more like a tiny little monkey with giant eyeballs. Oh, yeah. Okay, no, I totally got the wrong tails are adorable. I and was thinking,
2: isn't there a salamander-ish thing that all... Oh, it doesn't matter.
0: Oh, you're thinking of an axiotal. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I don't know what you're thinking of. No, okay. You were not thinking of
2: lemurs. No, no, no. Oh, okay. So they're the monkey things. They're the, monkey things. With the big eyes. Giant eyes. Are they nocturnal? yes uh, okay
0: yeah there you go oh, yeah i know what you're i got it now now he's there <laughs> so the weird thing about lemurs aside from their giant adorable eyeballs is that they existed only on the island of madagascar yeah okay. off the coast of africa okay and in india
2: oh yeah that's that is one of those problems
0: yeah and and like, no what, place what, in between what the heck right yeah so there's like thousands of miles between these two places no evidence of lemurs existing anywhere in between or having existed anywhere in between. Yeah. So that's weird. This led to the hypothesis by an English as well, just named Philip uh, Sclater in 1864, that there must have been at some point a massive land bridge connecting Madagascar and India yeah. that then sunk into the ocean. Right. And of course, when they named this hypothetical land bridge, they called it Lemuria. <laughs> because Cute. of the lemurs. <laughs> And then biologist Ernst Haeckel... Okay. ...who was obviously from... Germany. Correct. ...then speculated on the speculation and hypothesized that this could explain whether there had not been the proposed missing link discovered between proto-humans and humans... I see. ...because that species must also have lived on Lemuria and all evidence would have been destroyed when Lemuria sank into the ocean. Okay. So this is sort of scientific. It's scientific speculation based on the scientific knowledge at the time. Of course... What was the one theory that we didn't have back then that would explain the lemurs and kind of destroy this whole idea of the land bridges? Is it continental plates? Yeah, exactly. Continental drift, the reason that we see lemurs in India and Madagascar, because the continents have moved. Right. And they used to be much closer together. In fact, they used to be one supercontinent.
2: Right. Pangea. Yeah, Yeah, Pangea. Pangea. There we go.
0: Now, we have tons of evidence for continental drift. Yeah. But if you think about that idea, it sounds pretty weird. Yeah. But of course, in 1864, we didn't know about continental drift, right. And so this was a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. Like there had to be some explanation for those lemurs. But to get a proper understanding of our modern idea of Atlantis, we need to fast forward to 1882 and the publication of Atlantis, the antediluvian world by American politician Ignatius Donnelly. Right. That is an old-timey name. It is. But this is like, we began
2: the episode by tracing the actual origin, the first mention, the first recorded mention of Atlantis. That's somewhat of a different question, though, from the myth of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Because what we think about today, and in, in if, if I were to ask our listeners, well, you know, paint a picture of Atlantis, I think a lot of the ideas would actually be coming from Ignatius as opposed to Plato.
0: Yeah, because Plato didn't really flesh the idea out that much. There was an island. They went to war with Athens. They lost. They were destroyed. Right. What does Ignatius say? So, like, Donnelly is an interesting figure, even without his work on Atlantis. Uh, He was a populist politician, Mm. but not a reactionary one. So he was in favor of women's suffrage. Uh, He was an abolitionist. He was against slavery. Mm. Uh, He took issue with the influence of money in politics. It's like, okay, Ignatius, you're you're showing us some stuff. (laughs) All right, and then eventually he had his own bribery scandal, and he left politics a bitter and angry person. Right, as people do. Yeah, and so he doesn't find his utopia in America. Okay, he can't build his utopia in America, and so he goes looking for it in the past, Mm. and he finds it, of course, in Atlantis. Okay. So this book is is like thick. It's not a fiction. It's not a story. It's not a parable. It's him trying to use. Uh, observation in science to prove the existence of this of this missing continent. He makes a bunch of claims in the book, including that Plato's story was based on factual history, not legend. Atlantis is the location where humans first developed civilization. Humans from all over the world have their roots in as Atlantean emigrants. It was destroyed in a massive catastrophe. Uh, some people escaped, and that's where our flood stories from various cultures come from. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, already we've got an issue here. He's saying that, like, oh, there's all of these flood stories. They must have one origin, and that is the destruction of Atlantis. But even in Plato's version of the Atlantean story, the Egyptian priests make fun of Solon because they point out that there have been many, many floods, not just the Atlantean one.
2: So Donnelly is um, convinced by a theory called diffusionism. And what diffusionism says is that any major cultural influence has its origin in only one place in the world. The notion that cultures could independently, often around the same time, come up with similar ideas or similar solutions to problem was for him and other diffusionists off the table. So for them, the idea is there's only ever one source for, say, pyramids. Okay, so now, if you see pyramids in ancient Egypt, and you see pyramids in the Americas, the Incas, the Mayans...
0: They must have the same source. They
2: must have had the same source originally. Obviously, natural phenomena occur all over the place. There's lots of floods,
0: but... Well, not only that, and humans would always have lived
2: by water. Right, and would have always experienced it. But I, I think there is something elemental in his reasoning here, where... If there is a massive flood story, he's going to assume that it has one source. And so if different cultures are talking about this big flood, they must have all been in one place at one time.
0: Yeah. And this is one of his big arguments. And again, it's based on the same argument that you've just made. He says there's similarities in human cultures uh, in Europe and the Americas, both material and non-material. In addition to things like uh, pyramids and flood legends, there's also spears. He's like, look, there's spears in North America and there's spears in Europe. Surely human beings wouldn't have individually come up with the idea of a long pointy (laughs) stick. So they must have started in the same place. It must have been Atlantis. Sales. Okay. There's sales in America. There's sales in Europe and sales in Africa. Again, they must have started in the same place. Marriage and divorce. Okay. Exists like, throughout the world, and so it must have all started from the same location. But again, oh, and ghosts. That oh. was another one. But, of course, like, every culture does have ghosts, although they, have, they all have different ghosts, but every culture has death. Right. And every culture has loss, and every culture has mourning, and so it makes sense. I mean, we've talked about this before on the episode on ghosts. I feel like ghosts are the result that, uh, of the fact that we love somebody, and then they die but we still love them. Right. And that doesn't make sense. And so then we feel haunted and then we got ghosts or because we feel terrible but all the awful things we've done.
2: I think yeah and I, and so I think to sort of generalize this point. I I think it is just I today I, many of us I think are not diffusionists and and I don't struggle with this notion that Different people, different cultures could independently come up with very similar solutions to problems or circumstances that they're facing. Yeah, so you, could, you, you could
0: see individual humans on in one place, place of the world come up with marriage. Yeah. And another place also comes up with marriage. And then if you come up with marriage, you know what else you're going to come up with? Divorce. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, marriage solves a problem and then divorce solves a, a different problem. <laughs> and we're all going to come up with spiky sticks. Like right. everybody is going to do that.
2: And pyramids and wheels, I mean, they're straightforward things.
0: Like if you're going to build a giant structure, the most stable giant structure you can build is the shape of a pyramid. Exactly. So that's one reason why you see pyramids in no. these other places. But I think if you, if,
2: you, if you start with the notion that if you see similar things in different places, they must all have a common origin, then his line of reasoning works better than it does for us.
0: But, I mean, that wasn't all that he was saying. He's, he also argued that continents have risen and fallen thousands of feet in geological eras, which, as far as we know, is accurate. Mm-hmm. He's argued that islands have been created and destroyed in short periods of time through volcanic activity. Yep, yeah. also sure. true. Uh, there are similarities between animals in Europe and the Americas. Also true. Although, again, continental drift sort of explains that. And he also says, and this is an odd one, the lack of any magical or fantastical elements in the Plato story indicate that it's true. Huh? And I was like, wait, but there's a ton of magic in it. There is Poseidon oh. using his oh, godly yeah, yeah, yeah. powers, creating the kingdom, hot and cold running springs. So how does he explain this? Because he was also an advocate of another fancy theory, euhemerism. Uh oh, what's this? So euhemerism is the idea that mythical or supernatural entities and events are actually references to human activities. And it was an idea that was growing popular in the 19th century because it was a way to reconcile ancient Greek stories, which people loved, with a more naturalist perspective or with Christianity.
2: Okay, hold on. I think I need an
0: example. Like, the ancient Greek stories are amazing. Yep. But if you're a Christian, how are you supposed to deal with the fact that they are filled with other gods? Right. And so what you do is you say, okay... Poseidon was a guy. He was like a king. Okay. He was a great leader. Uh, I he see. wasn't actually a god.
2: Okay, okay, okay.
0: He was able to command people to build giant trenches. Sure. He did not use his godly powers to magically do them. Okay. And so, yeah, this euhemerism idea is a way of saying, no, these stories are true, but you just got to tweak them a little bit. Mm. And in fact, uh Thomas Jefferson did this with the gospels.
2: I see. Okay, okay, okay. I get, because yeah, he, I,
0: wanted, he wanted the Jesus stories and the lessons there, but he didn't like the supernatural stuff. And so right. the Jefferson Gospels just took out all of the supernatural stuff right, right, right. and left in the Jesus teachings. I see. Okay, got it. So in order to accept the fact that there's no magic or fantastic elements in the Plato story, you also have to accept his premise that the story is an example of euhemerism. Okay. I mean, ultimately, Donnelly, he, was, he wasn't a scammer. He was, like, being legit and honest, and he, he thought that he was doing, like, good investigative work. He was committing a, a sort of a bit of a fallacy that we all commit to one degree or another. He wasn't investigating whether Atlantis was real. He was starting from the assumption that it was real and looking for evidence that could support it. Right. So this is an example of biased assimilation. When we're provided with ambiguous data, we tend to interpret it in a way that fits in more comfortably with what we already believe mm-hmm. or what we want to believe. Mm-hmm. And that's also positive test strategy. We only seek out information that confirms our hypothesis instead of also testing it in a way that may falsify it. Mm-hmm. And, and we all do this. Sure. Because yeah. we want to believe the things we want to believe.
2: Right. There are other aspects of Donnelly's work that are maybe unsavory. It's a version of race theory one in which assumes that the Atlanteans were the quote-unquote Aryans, and they had achieved a fantastic degree of technology 10,000 years before anybody had really left the caves. And now, when you go around the world, you see evidence of... You know, the ancient Egyptians or ancient Mayans have done these incredible feats, but haha, Donnelly suggests no, no, it was actually the Atlanteans, which is kind of code for not the indigenous people of those areas, but. White people. Yeah, it's did like this an stuff.
0: it's like an early version of ancient aliens theory. Right. It's like, oh, the Egyptians couldn't possibly have done this; must have been aliens. Right. And oh, those the aliens
2: are white. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they, they do tend to be.
0: Well, um, let's take that unsavory uh, idea and run with it. Okay. Because now we're going to talk about another bit of the recipe of the creation of this idea of Atlantis. We need to talk about Helena Blavatsky.
2: So wait, we need a primer. Who is she again? Who are the theosophists? And what's her, what's her role in spreading this?
0: So this is happening in the same place, in the same time as Donnelly's coming up with his work on Atlantis. Yeah. yeah. The 19th century, the middle of the 19th century, the United States. So Blavatsky is the founder of something called Theosophy. And she was a highly influential occultist of the 19th century. Occult, of course, being this idea of hidden knowledge, suppressed knowledge. And the key claim of theosophy is that there was once an ancient religion. All other religions have since produced watered-down doctrine. Okay. So, again, uh, this sort of claim that we see over and over again, that everything has to have the single source, right. and we move away from that source and become watered down and corrupted. Right, I see. All right, so, according to Blavatsky, the secrets and practices of that true original religion are still held by ascended masters, who live for much longer than a normal human and have supernatural powers. Now Blavatsky claimed to have access to these ascended masters, Mm. which was handy. Uh, Although it seemed like a lot of the stuff that she claimed was from them was written in her handwriting. And actually, when you read what she wrote, she was borrowing a lot from Eastern religions and philosophies like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. It was a bit of a sampler pack. She was like using the, the world as a bit of a buffet. Now, she was super critical of Darwinism and Catholicism. And for Blavatsky, she wasn't hunting for lost cities in order to fill the gaps in evolution, because evolution was the thing she was fighting against. She was interested in coming up with an entirely new paradigm that would compete against evolution. So in her book, The Secret Doctrine, Blavatsky argues that before humans as we understand them now uh, took the shape that they are, there was a series of four other root races Each one was getting more advanced. The first race only existed as etheric matter and reproduced through something like mitosis, like an amoeba. The second race came from a place called Hyperborea, uh, or the northern parts of the world, which at the time she claimed, because the Earth was tilted in a different way, were tropical, and they reproduced by budding off like barnacles. (laughs) The third race lived in Lemuria, which we've already discussed, and they spread out across the Indian and Pacific Oceans... And she argued that the Indigenous Australians were part of this primitive root race. Uh-huh. And here you start to be like, oh boy. Because she Oh, is, just here. Yeah, well, I mean you continue to go, <laughs> oh boy. Because you can see that there does seem to be some like some just obvious, like old timey scientific racism ideas of Well,
2: and this is the heyday of scientific racism, right? This yeah. is when it really starts to get going. There's these ideas exist in Europe. Across a bunch of intellectual disciplines.
0: Yeah, due in part to a misunderstanding of Darwinism.
2: Yeah, d- d- deliberate or otherwise.
0: Yeah. Darwinism is arguing that no, 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 there is just one species of human with small variations within them. Mm. And she's saying no, 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 because the different races on Earth all came from like different locations. Okay. The fourth root race came from Atlantis, and these were the indigenous Americans and Asians. The fifth root race, of course, the Aryans, mm-hmm. who would eventually emerge from like the the, the more sophisticated Atlanteans. I see. Eventually she argued there'd be a sixth root race that would emerge from the US, and then a seventh one that would emerge from that one, and then we're done. And then okay. the no more normal races humans have, have gotten as far as they can go. So Lovatsky and her fellow Theosophists described Atlantis in great detail. And there's three main themes that were added to the concept of Atlantis here by the theosophists. One, there's now a Manichaean aspect to the story. As the Atlanteans were split into two religious sects, the ones who revered the one spirit of nature and the ones who worshipped the demons of matter. Hmm. Uh, This is also something you have to take a drink when I say Manichaean. (laughs) So the idea of the Manichaeans is that the world is broken down into a massive fight between the good and the evil. Yeah. That's how you understand the, the struggle of, of the world and why there's evil in it. And it's interesting too. So you've got a group of people who are like matter and uh, possessions. These are the things we worship versus the ones who worship the true spirit of nature. You can see how this kind of evolved from the, from the idea that Plato came up with in the original story. That's one, it's Manichaean now, it's a struggle between good and evil. Two, the leaders of the demon worshippers were known as the Lords of the Dark Face. They eventually seized power and through the misuse and abuse of magic caused a series of catastrophic floods to destroy Atlantis. Three, the good Atlanteans who worshipped the one spirit of nature escaped before the final cataclysm and they went off to different parts of the world and became the seed bearers for the fifth root race of humanity. Mm which kind of ties in with what Donnelly was saying, which is where she got a lot of this stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Donnelly had one major root race, being the Aryans and then two others. She's modified some of these ideas, but she's clearly like using uh, Donnelly's account as kind of a a historical source and, and just starting
0: from there. Yeah. So where did she get this information from? Well, Blavatsky claimed it was from a combination of the alleged Ascended Masters and through some of the occult practices that she had, such as scrying, which is using hidden methods like crystals and mirrors to get access to, take a drink, revealed knowledge. Right. And we've encountered revealed knowledge before. What is revealed knowledge? Knowledge that is given
2: to you directly from some supernatural being, like a god or a spirit. or You don't have to work for it. It's it's totally true. You don't need
0: evidence for it. You don't need evidence. You You often can't can't test
2: it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yep, exactly. And that's where she's getting a lot of this stuff from. So, even after Blavatsky, there was a lot of theosophists who were still pushing these ideas. In 1930, a theosophist named Arthur E. Powell wrote a book titled The Solar System, in which he went into great detail regarding life in Atlantis. And one of the things I thought was interesting was the Atlanteans had massive airships. Yes. With which they could use to wage war on each other, dropping bombs filled with poison gas. Right. And this is why I was talking about the triremes before. Because
2: technology has evolved in the storyteller's world, so it has now evolved also in Atlantis.
0: Exactly. In the same way that Plato gave the ancient Atlanteans technology he was familiar with, Powell was giving the Atlanteans technology that wouldn't have seemed out of place in the early 20th century when he's writing. Mm-hmm. Right. So now let's move to some more of the, the missing pieces that put together the Atlantean story. And we're going to stay with revealed knowledge mm-hmm. because we're going to talk about a guy who we haven't talked about before. I'm sort of kind of surprised Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey. So he's born in 1877 in Kentucky. And as a kid, he claimed to have visions in which he would get revealed knowledge and he would go into trances, and he would prophesize. And this is how he got the nickname, the Sleeping Prophet. And people started coming to him to have their illnesses diagnosed and to have treatments prescribed. By 1923, he'd become interested in the idea of reincarnation mm-hmm. and would give people life readings in which he told them about their past life experiences. Mm-hmm. Reincarnation, this has got to be an idea that young Lee was into. Oh, God, in a previous life, you oh, were yeah. super into reincarnation.
2: Super into reincarnation.
0: So what's the basic idea of reincarnation?
2: Uh, there's a couple of variations of it, but the basic idea is that some spiritual part of you does not die at death, but migrates to another body
0: and continues to live. Boy, we really, really struggle with loss and death. Yeah. Like, and understandably, loss and death are terrible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, and you can get variations of it and where you spend some time in a kind of a heaven, purgatory, afterlife space and then come back, or it happens almost immediately. But the idea is that the you now has lived in one capacity or another many, many, many lives previous, and that you could yourself or somebody else could recollect traces of those lives.
0: And that's what Casey claimed he was able to do. Yeah. He, he could say, and it's interesting because Casey was also a Christian, and I don't know how he was reconciling this sort of bodily reincarnation with conventional Christianity. Mm. But it was paying the bills, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. he reconciled. <laughs> so as it turned out, a lot of the people that were coming to him had lived past lives in Atlantis. Atlantis. Now, if we were skeptical and cynical, which we're not, but if we were, we might point out that there's an advantage to locating a person's past life in Atlantis, and that's, you don't have to worry about getting historical details right. Yeah, that's true. You can just say whatever. Like, if you said, oh, you lived in ancient Egypt, yeah, then you would have to get some stuff about ancient Egypt correct right, in your right, story. Right.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Whereas if you say you're from Atlantis, you can basically say whatever you want. Yeah. And Casey's Atlanta seems to be based on, not identical to, the one described by Blavatsky. Mm. So there's two warring factions, Manichaean again, but now it's the Children of the Law of One and the Children of Belial. So it's it's similar, but it's a little bit tweaked. Uh, the Children of the Law of One were deep into spirituality, while the Children of Belial were into material possessions and worldly power. Mm. Classic. They created advanced technology that was based on harnessing the energy of crystals And they also had aircraft and long-distance communication, Mm -hmm. which, of course, Casey's world also would have had. Right. Uh, Due to their hubris, they brought around the destruction of Atlantis. And like Blavatsky, Casey argued that some of the people escaped the destruction and started other civilizations around the world. And if it seems like we're being hard on revealed knowledge here, maybe that's not fair. Maybe that shows our biases. But I would say this. As Jesus said... Hmm. Beware of false prophets. Mm. And how do you know a false prophet?
2: You, you shall know them by their fruits. Exactly.
0: No? There you go. That was the quote
2: that came into my mind. Yeah, was... You're right. Okay. He
0: looked so worried as he said it. <laughs> okay. So what are the fruits of a prophet? How can you tell if a prophet's any good or not?
2: Yeah, I don't know, actually. That's a good question.
0: If their stuff comes true. Right. So Casey added a new twist to the Atlantis idea. Okay. So we can test him because he's making a prediction Atlantis is going to return. Ah. Atlantis is going to rise up out of the ocean. Okay. Atlantis is going to make itself known to the world. Yes. In... 1968 or 1969? Okay. So if we are to judge him by his fruits of Atlantis, (laughs) I would say we should beware of false prophets. And why should we beware of false prophets? This is where this is gonna take kind of a dark and alarming turn. Because the story of Atlantis gets a little bit, like, dangerous. Yeah. Because in the 1930s, there was Like so,
2: sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. But like so many stories that are not rooted in evidence, that that can get an out through revealed knowledge. I think one of the issues that I constantly encounter with people, that I have conversations about this sort of in a non-professional way, is there's this idea that, well, what's the harm? You know, what's the harm with these ideas? What's the harm believing in Atlantis? I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. It's not like I'm really choosing to believe something. Um, doesn't it doesn't
0: change my day-to-day life.
2: And it doesn't change other people's day-to-day lives. But mm-hmm. I think that you're going to give us a concrete example, but on the whole, I think that we can't tell what the ramifications of believing nonsense are And often, like in my research, I did not know that some of the early mythology was so heavily based in 19th century European race theory. Yeah. There's a lot of unanticipated dangers in believing in nonsense.
0: Yeah. I mean, to paraphrase Voltaire, you can get somebody to believe in absurdity. You can get them to commit an atrocity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in the nineteen thirties there was another group that was interested in the story of Atlantis.
2: Oh my goodness. And we're gonna to have to do a whole thing on the Nazis and the occult. I know we've promised we promised this oh, in yeah. a couple of episodes, but like that is just like one hot mess of occult terror.
0: Yeah, so we're not gonna get that into it here. This is just sort of an intro to that episode, basically. Okay. So in the German town of Bremen. Yeah, Bremen. Bremen, on the street of Okay. Okay. There's an umlaut there. Well, how do you spell it? B-O with an umlaut. ttcher Strasse. Böttcherstrasse. Oof, that was not close. In Böttcherstrasse, <laughs> there is a building that sort of looks like an Art Deco European ski lodge. It's got okay. pointed towers, sharply sloping roof. It's very pretty. Okay. It was built in 1931 and is named House Atlantis. <laughs> okay. So it was inspired by the ideas of a German ethnographer named Hermann Wirth. Uh, it was built to house an institute designed to study the history of Atlantis, specifically how the history of Atlantis was related to modern day Germany. Okay. To be more specific, to study how the myth of Atlantis proved that the Germans were the oldest and purest race on earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. To do- well,
2: you know, it's not far. Once Ignatius like puts that down with the, what is not the Ur race, what does he call it? Uh, the root? The root race. You know, and uh, Blodovaski gets her turn at it. I mean, we're right there
0: now. Yeah, you're, you're getting close. You just need a bit of nudging. So to do this, Verth had moved Atlantis from where pretty much everybody said it was supposed to be, the Atlantic Ocean west of the Strait of Gibraltar, into the North Sea. Yeah. To make it a little bit wider, really. Yeah, yeah. And Wurth wasn't using Plato for this because Plato's story wouldn't have fit in at all with what Wurth was trying to prove. But Verth had another source. An ancient text that might have even predated Plato. Uh Did you know about this? The Aura Linda Manuscript. No. Oh, see, here's a big twist. Shocking twist in the podcast. (laughs) So this was a book that was allegedly discovered in 1867 that provided an alternate version of history in Europe from 2200 BCE to 800 CE.
2: When was it discovered?
0: 1867. Okay, okay in which the Greek and Phoenician alphabets actually have their origins in the alphabet of West Germanic ethnic groups. <laughs> so the Germans figured out writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the continent was ruled by a group of celibate priestesses who worshipped the goddess Freya, basically arguing that the ancestors of modern Germans were more influential and advanced than mainstream historians acknowledge, yeah, yeah. Because they were suppressing the truth about it. Right,
2: right, right, right. It was... Because the problem for the Nazis is that the Germans weren't that advanced. I mean, they were the quintessential barbarians while Rome was, you know... Got its like fancy high culture stuff.
0: And... Sure. And North Africa had mathematics and astronomy, yeah, 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 yeah. and exactly. like the Middle East had their stuff going on, and the oh, Germans the, the were. China
2: was, as we said in the previous, it was already like two or three thousand years old by the time the Germans like put on pants.
0: Yeah. And also, think about the time period in which this takes place. It's 1930s. So the Germans have just gone through like a brutal humiliation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like, their economy has been destroyed, they lost a war, they're angry, they're bitter, they're scared, they're frustrated. If only there could be some story that they could hear, that would make them feel like things were better. So this book, the Aurelinda Manuscript, was allegedly taken from writings written between 2200 BCE and 1250 CE. Uh, You're not going to be surprised to hear that it's much more likely that the whole thing had been written as a satire of German nationalism in the mid-19th century.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, good way to kind of defang a satire work is to be like, see, I told you that history is true.
0: Yeah. I mean, when, when people have gone over this book, there are anachronisms... It does not fit in at all with, like, basically every other historical account. I
2: think you're already giving it too much credit.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. So part of this hoax book included references to a place called Atland, which some read as a reference to Atlantis. There were other influential German pseudo-archaeologists as well, like Edmund Kiss, who argued that temples in Bolivia that had been built in about 200 CE by indigenous Bolivians had actually been built by Germans... Right. In 17000 BCE. Ah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And that those German people had been inhabitants of Atlantis. Right. And it should be noted that both verse and kiss would go on to serve in the SS. Right, sure. So, I mean, we know from pop culture there's this all, all this idea that like Hitler was after the Spear of Longinus and like the 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 Holy Grail and the the Ark of the Covenant. It's not entirely true. I mean, we'll get into a whole episode about that, but there definitely was a strong occult presence in the early days of the Nazi party, oh, yeah? particularly people like Himmler, who was, like, totally obsessed with this stuff. And this is partially why the Nazis needed to generate absurdities in order to justify their atrocities. And to a degree, they looked to the world of the occult to to find those absurdities, and also to the myth of Atlantis. So let's talk about the idea of myth, and the idea of fiction, and the importance of fiction. Because I I think this is something that we started with. Plato meant this as a fiction, and it had a point. There is a reason why we have these fictions. And part of that is that it's crucial in shaping the way we see the world. Uh, At the beginning of the 20th century, there were so many competing ideas and ideologies in play, and there was an explosion in fiction on Atlantis. Because there's no physical proof of the existence of Atlantis, it makes a great setting for fiction, because whatever themes or lessons or whatever you want to get across, you can just superimpose on the blankness of Atlantis. Yeah. So I'll give you some examples. Let's say you're against communism and against labor (laughs) unions. Well, try David Perry's Scarlet Empire from 1906, in which a young socialist jumps into the sea to end his miserable socialist life, and he finds himself in Atlantis, which is at the bottom of the ocean under a giant dome. Everyone there wears the same clothes, they eat the same food, and they have to speak the same exact same amount of words each day (laughs) as each other. Okay. So you've got like a ration of words you can speak. (laughs) People have numbers rather than names. 25% of the population are spies who keep an eye on the other 75% and on each other. And eventually the hero falls in love with a beautiful Atlantean individualist, and they escape in a submarine And while being attacked by a kraken, they shoot a torpedo with the kraken. They miss the kraken, blow a hole in the dome, spoiler alert, and it dooms Atlantis. And he learns his lesson about the horrors of socialism. Right, right, right. But let's say you're in favor of communism. Uh Uh-huh. Well, try Richard Hatfield's Geyserland from 1908, in which Atlantis is at the North Pole, and it's a utopian socialist paradise.
2: Okay, and everybody wears the same clothes and has a certain number of words they can speak.
0: And And you still have 25% of the people being spies. (laughs) But let's say you're against immigration and you're feeling xenophobic. Yeah. Try Lillian Elizabeth Roy's 1929 novel, The Prince of Atlantis, in which the kingdom lets in too many pagan immigrants who then corrupt Atlantean society with their wicked, crooked ways causing its destruction, yeah. whereas the true Atlanteans, who practice theosophy, right. escape in time.
2: Right, right, right.
0: Or maybe you have an issue with the military-industrial complex. Try J. Leslie Mitchell's 1932 novel, Three Go Back in which three people go back, a beautiful woman, a pacifist, and a munitions maker. Uh They accidentally get sent back in time to Atlantis at a time in which the pacifist and noble Cro-Magnons are under siege from the brutal and warmongering Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. So, like, basically, whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to think, whatever you're trying to propose, you can find that in this story because Atlantis isn't there. Right. Because Atlantis isn't there, it's whatever you want it to be.
2: And I think that's what makes it such a compelling um, myth for all of us to kind of hang on to. And maybe it speaks to its staying power within culture, that it would be really nice to have this utopian template that disappeared and we could discover it and fix all our problems. In the same way we hope that maybe aliens would fix our problems or some kind of the occult would fix our problems. I see it being really compelling. I want to, though, leave a little room for some ire that I have for a kind of quote-unquote scholarship that I think has done as much to perpetuate this myth as um, the actual myth makers and then these, these fictional accounts. Uh, so we've gone through from, you know, two and a half thousand years ago in ancient Greece to the 19th century and then the early part of the 20th century what you have in the second part of the 20th century though is I think a bunch of scholars recognize that there is money to be made here and you see this um, in you know today in in shows like on the history channel I honestly find the history channel to be the worst named channel out there because it's just not about history like there's very little stuff on it that is actually an account of something that actually happened in history.
0: A lot um, of wild swinging for the fences with speculation.
2: Yeah, like the ancient alien stuff that you talked about, or mm. could this or that find be Atlantis? Now, the thing is that stuff does make money. And Nathan and I talked in our in a previous episode about scams. we We have thought about running, you know, because debunking and being on the side of truth on the whole does not is not very lucrative. You get to have the ethical high ground but that doesn't always count for so much. The opposite is lucrative and I was thinking already all the way back to Francis Bacon who I feel like you know puts Atlantis in the title in part to make an otherwise you know political argument a bit more compelling And then in the 20th century you have a lot of, academics who kind of develop a side hustle with leading questions as you know on these shows where they're like well some people believe that Atlantis was just a myth made by Plato but others think it was a loss you know and it's like oh my god and you're just you're just kind of running a scam without actually going all the way by just being obviously fraudulent, I think that has a lot to do with perpetuating the myth today. You go to something like the History Channel, assuming that there is a certain amount of credibility there, because that's the History Channel. There is this branch of very unscrupulous scholarship that takes advantage and, and, and makes money by perpetuating cultural myths.
0: What I got from that is you're saying there's more money in pushing ideas of Atlantis than there are describing how the myth of Atlantis is created. Yeah. Okay, hold on. i got to switch everything around for a second. Uh, give me a second. All right, so... But is it really that strange to say right. that a place like Atlantis could have existed? After all, we have seen entire societies destroyed by cataclysmic events. Pompeii. Yes. Pompeii was destroyed in a moment. The Minoan civilization... It exactly. was pretty much wiped out and rediscovered. The city of Troy, which we thought was a myth, exactly. turned out to be a real place. Exactly. And in fact, I would argue that perhaps thousands of years from now, maybe people will be telling the story of the mysterious city of Pripyat, a town that was consumed by the evil dragon named Chernobyl. Huh.